I had intense fear and panic because we were obviously crashing. Out of my heart came the thought, oh God, help, I'm going to die. From the time that they pronounced me dead was uh, a good 45 minutes. It's determined that I was not breathing for 20 minutes. They cut my clothes and then they paddled my heart because my heart had stopped. And I could see people screaming and crying, but I didn't realize that was actually my physical body because I was somewhere else. About 20 past four in the afternoon, by half past seven, I was dead. Clinically dead, four minutes. And they were crying because I was dead. And I was trying to tell them, no, I'm, I'm not dead, I'm just fine, I'm okay. I was greeted by people I had known in the past. I started to feel like I was surrounded by all this warm, loving, beautiful, soothing, loving energy. I'm back with God again. I just felt this almighty release, like, wow. I'm back. I'm back home again. Incredibly safe and felt at home. I'd come back home. It was a very strong feeling that I've come back home. The only thing that I could feel, if you could imagine, absolute love and peace. There wasn't anything else to be felt. And light is literally emitting from him. And I could feel that that tremendous amount of love was coming through him as well. They were brighter than everybody else. And... I just knew who they were. Welcome to Round Trip Death, everybody. And I cannot tell you how excited I am for this show today because of our guest, Brooke Jones, who I spoke to a few days ago, and we had a riot. So today, oh boy, most near-death experiences, we talk about them kind of reverently and somberly. And today is not going to be that way. I can promise you that because Brooke is a riot. Brooke, say hello. Hello. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Eric. I really appreciate it. You are very welcome. I'm not sure how to introduce you because you don't have one of those boring bios. So I'm going to throw out a few things and you tell me if these are accurate or not. Okay. Okay. First of all, you're an author. And a writer for all kinds of things. What what have you written besides books? Um, I have ghost written uh, several movies in Hollywood, which you know sh- don't tell anybody because the Writers Guild doesn't allow that. So you know, I can't talk about it, and that's why my name doesn't appear anywhere because ghost writing is not acceptable in the film community. Um, I have a blog. I was a political satirist on stage and on the radio in Los Angeles for many years. And now, thanks to cancer and advancing decrepitude, I'm, instead of being a stand-up comic, I'm a sit-down comic. And my political satire that I used to do on the radio, I now do on my blog, What If?, is decrepitude a real word? Uh, yeah, actually it is. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe you made that one up. I do make up words occasionally. It's one of my favorite things to do. But no, decrepitude really exists. It's a, it's a thing. Your book is called Why Are There Monkeys? And in a few minutes, everybody's going to know why that why that title is. But I wanted to read one of the reviews that somebody wrote about your book because I think it probably describes you. And you can... And you can decrepitude my, my uh, you know, inspiration on that or not. But it says uh, it's both flagrantly irreverent and strikingly inspirational. 
Ah, Bruce Grayson, Dr. Bruce Grayson. Yes, the co-founder of IONS and the world's leading expert in the science of near-death experience. And yeah, he read my book and loved it and wrote a review, including the words you just spoke. Okay, let's go back in history just a little bit so people know where you came from. (laughs) Okay, this is this is another of did I get this accurate or not? Were you a hippie in the 60s? Um absolutely, and I take issue with the past tense of that phrase. Are you still a hippie? Of course. Of course I am. I don't see any love beads. I told you not to dress up because there's no video. That's why. Oh, you have a mala. Yeah, I do, because I'm a Buddhist. I'm, uh, I don't refer to myself as a hippie anymore, but if one was back in the day, then one is because, you know, unless your politics suddenly changed, um, you still believe the wonderful things we believed back in the day. You just aren't quite as dumb as, as we all tended to be back in the day. But no, I refer to myself now as a gypsy crone instead of uh, a hippie, but you know, all the same. And you live in an artistic town, don't you? Well, I was, gosh, I was in San Francisco for many years. I was in Los Angeles for many years. And then I moved to Eugene, Oregon, which is, yeah, a lot of people say it's the new San Francisco. It it isn't the new San Francisco. It's just Eugene. Uh, And it's a very interesting town. It has a university, but, you know, it's a very incestuous town also. And cowboys everywhere. And I kind of describe it as Omaha with an ocean view, sort of. But, you know, we won't we won't bother to go into that. But, yeah, I lived in, in Eugene for many years. And now I live north of Eugene, but still in the Pacific Northwest. Well, I'm going to encourage everybody to grab their frosty mug of Diet Coke like I have, because we're going to have some fun today. There are not many people that during their near-death experience have an opportunity to sit down and ask God all kinds of questions. And I don't know if they don't have the opportunity or if they don't have the guts or the gumption or just what it is, but Brooke couldn't help herself. And that's what happened. So please take us back to when you had this experience. What led up to it? This experience occurred when I was 25 years old. I had just turned 25. And as any really honest 25-year-old can tell you, we're pretty dumb at that age. I mean, our brains haven't even completely fully developed. But yeah, we, we tend to still be doing really dumb things. And I was 25 and doing lots of really dumb things. And I had a party. It was, as I said, just after my birthday, a couple of friends came over and they brought some party favors. And I, as many at that age, do believe that I was bulletproof. And, you know, so I said, oh, yeah, let's do this. And I did some drugs nobody in their right mind should do. And I overdosed. And you died. And I died. For eight minutes. I was legally dead for eight minutes okay walk us through it i want the details what happened okay um i have being a child of the 60s as i am i had seen overdoses i knew what they looked like and i knew i was having one and even though at that point in my life i was what i refer to as a closet agnostic um 
it wasn't that I didn't believe in God. It was just that I had never seen any evidence of it. So, you know, one way or the other, I was pretty indifferent. But there I was dying, and I suddenly found myself doing something I don't do. I started praying and chanting and picturing every Hollywood actor who had ever portrayed Jesus and um, chanting to a frame picture of Swami Satchidananda that was on my dresser just in front of me because I had studied with him years before. And then I took my last breath and I was dead. Now, this was 1975. And if Dr. Raymond Moody had already published his book, I hadn't seen it. Um, and I had never yet heard the phrase near-death experience. It, it hadn't yet become the you know, point of the realm that it is now. So the whole traffic uh, tunnel and white light and all of that that is now iconic at this point, I'd never heard of. So I had nothing to relate to when I suddenly found myself moving through a tunnel that was quite literally, at least from what I could tell, made of light. And I wasn't walking through this tunnel. It felt as if I was being carried through it. And this tunnel, it felt alive. It seemed to breathe. And it carried me until it wasn't carrying me anymore. And I was suddenly standing but I couldn't tell what I was standing on because I couldn't see anything. And it wasn't that I was blind. It's that there wasn't anything there. I mean, nothing. All I saw was, I want to call it a fog, but it wasn't like any fog that I had seen here on earth. And this light that didn't really seem like a light when you turn on a light bulb, there was something very organic about it and it literally felt alive. And I looked around and I saw nothing, nobody. I don't know what I was standing on. I looked down, I didn't see anything, but I was standing and I called out. I mean, hello, hello. Anybody home? Anybody here? And I didn't get any answers and I didn't hear any responses. And I finally got frustrated and I just said, can somebody please tell me where the hell I am? Bam. That's when I heard the voice. It's a voice I now say mm, made Darth Vader sound like Mickey Mouse. It was that deep and mellifluous and beautiful and gentle and resonant. And it said, watch your language. Remember where you are. But you didn't know where you were. Bingo, which is what I said. I would gladly remember where I was, but to do that, I'd have to first find out where I was. So I repeat, where am I? I'm going to answer. And then a voice said, you're at my front door. And then I said, that's nice, but who are you? And that's when the conversation got really interesting. And immediately, somehow, I knew. I knew that voice that I 
was hearing, and, and, and I, I need to qualify that. It wasn't hearing the way you and I are talking now and I'm hearing you and you're hearing me. It was as if my body had become a celestial tuning fork and every sound that the voice uttered resonated throughout every cell of my body. And suddenly I knew, and I said, apparently, oh my God. And the voice laughingly said, by Jove, I think she's got it. Boom. And we're off and running. And I was standing at God's front door talking to God. And I said, may I ask questions? And the voice said, of course. I said, will you give me the answers? And the voice said, we'll see. Which made me a little crazy because that was my mother's favorite expression in life. And whenever she said, see, it always meant mm, no. So I figured I'll just do this one step at a time. Are you seeing anything at this point or just hearing well or absorbing this? Nothing. I'm feeling it. It's resonating through me. But no, there was nothing to see. It, it was like I was in some kind of celestial vacuum that was lit by something that felt alive. Knowing that I was in a realm beyond this one, none of the words that we use, and I only speak a couple of languages, but none of them offer words that really explain what it was that I saw or experienced, because all of that exists in a world quite beyond the world we're living in right now. So every word that I use to describe my experience, you just have to, you know, Go with me here. I'm doing the best I can, but it requires sort of inventing language for things that don't really have words, don't have names, don't exist in this world. So, okay, there I was in the other realm, the other world, the other side of the veil, whatever words you want to use. That's where I was. And one of the earliest questions I asked was what to call this being. And I did that only after I finally was able to say, are you male or female? And God laughed. And I'll get to laughter in a second. But the response I got when I said, are you male or female was, why does everybody ask me that? Uh Oh, God just asked me a question. Oh, now I'm really in trouble. There's just no way. So I said, why are you asking me? And he said, well, you know, where's it written that I know everything? I said, oh, I don't know. How about the Bible? And he went, "Mm, no, actually, it's not. And then we had a really long talk about the Bible. But in between those two conversations, when I said, what do I call you? I mean, Jesus, Lord, Yahweh, Allah, Father, what? And he said, I've been called all of those and many more. But the truth is, it doesn't make any difference what you call me, because your names for me don't define me. In other words, 
whatever names we use to define that divine being, the creator, the father, whatever you want to call it, him, they, them, doesn't matter. It's totally okay with that being because that word, that name is our own invention for something way bigger than we are. And he doesn't care. And when I say he, I have to again say, hang on, because I did ask, are you male or female? And finally, I got an answer on this mellifluous, magical, fabulous, most obviously masculine voice I'd ever heard said, I am neither. And then <laughs> the most profoundly feminine, gentle, maternal, sweet voice said, and then again, we're both. Hello, are you still with me here? Um, I think if I hadn't already been dead, the shock of all of this would have killed me. But I just kept going and asking. And if I had been older at the time that this happened, I'm sure I would have asked far more profound questions. But I was 25. 25-year-olds 25 tend to be idiots. At least I was an idiot at 25. So all I could do was ask the best questions that occurred to me at that time in that place. And that's what I did. Let's hear some of the others. Oh, okay. Um, I actually even asked about reincarnation. And um, I said, Did, does it happen? Is it real? Um, I mean, Shirley MacLaine has been saying since forever that she's, you know, been here a few times in a few different lives. And by the way, as a matter of fact, I sent Shirley a copy of the book. I, have, I haven't heard from her yet, but that's okay. And so I was asking, do we become something else? Do we have another life after that life? And is Shirley MacLaine right when she says that she has been reincarnated? And his response to that was, you don't need that answer because that has nothing to do with you. It's none of your business. And I said, well, okay, is reincarnation real? Has it happened? He said, yes. I said, when? He said, again, not your business. When it has to happen, it happens. So I moved right along and I said, well, what about I figured this was a perfect opportunity to ask about death. We have one life, we're born, we live, we die, the end. And the answer to that is no, absolutely not. And though it took me a long time to assimilate everything I had learned once I came back, this particular question and answer session might have been one of the most profound. And as I thought about it after the fact, made perfect sense to me and still does. And I'm surprised that it doesn't to everybody. It was explained to me this way. We spend nine months, you know, give or take, in a water environment in our mother's womb before we're born. We're not even breathing air. What happens when mom goes into labor and we are forced down that birth canal and out, do we die? Well, yeah, sort of, because the life in that environment ended. So we have died to that life, those nine months, that incubation period. We were alive and then we were born into 
another life. In any way you look at it, the life we have once we're born is different from the life just prior to being born. I mean, we're breathing air. We eventually can talk and feed ourselves and all things you can't do in nine months when you're connected to a placenta and you're not breathing. We live our lives. We do what we do. We make choices, and that's a big deal I'll get back to. And at some point, eventually, this life, as, as does everything that lives, comes to an end. But death is no more an end than birth. It's a doorway, just as the birth process was a door from one life to another. What we call death is nothing but a doorway from this life to our next. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think some people might even call that reincarnation. I I wouldn't, but, you know, I hear the term reincarnation quite a bit in interviewing people. And I think there's lots of different definitions of exactly what that can be. And that's okay. But yeah, we go from one place to another. The doorway makes sense. Then what's next? Did he tell you anything about that after the doorway through death? Let's talk about karma for a second, because that came up also. Okay. What is karma? And there are millions of people who live their lives by it, and there are millions of people who think it's a bunch of, you know, horse pucky. The funny thing is, karma is no more than Newtonian laws of physics. There's nothing airy-fairy about karma. Karma says what you put out you get back. Well, hello? The basic underlying laws of physics say what goes around comes around. Yeah, equal and opposite reaction. Yes, nothing happens by itself. And quantum physics says the same thing. Absolutely. And that's all karma is. Energy we put out there, and we put energy out with our thoughts, we put energy out with our actions, we put energy out into the world with our words. Every single thing we do, think, or say puts energy into the world. Whether that energy is positive or negative depends on us. What is it you are sharing with the people with whom you live, with the teller at the bank, with the cop who stops you for speeding? What is it you are sharing? You are sharing energy. Are you sharing positive energy? Are you offering peace and compassion? Or are you angry? and offering negative energy. And there is such a thing as negative energy. And yes, it causes harm. We in our own bodies have got to eventually accept the reality, even medical science understands this, that our own emotional components have a very, very strong effect on our physical health. Why? Energy. What is energy? It's a vibration. Now, let me ask you to do me a favor. Hold your hand up, Eric. Hold your hand. Okay, now look at your hand. Is it moving? No. Wrong. I know it looks like it isn't, but, 
and you know where I'm going here, every single cell in our bodies is made of millions and bajillions of neutrons, protons, electrons, atoms, molecules, and they all vibrate. They are never still. We are moving. Even if you don't see it, every single square inch, centimeter, and molecule of your body is moving right now. And there's actually space in between each of them, too. Absolutely. Which is a little freaky to try to think, because we can't see the space. Right. But we accept that it exists when we look up in the sky and we see a space between two clouds. There is a space there. There is a gap. What is that? Well, it's cloud there, cloud there, not cloud there. But that's not a black hole in between. It's just something other than that cloud and that cloud. But anyway, the vibrations of our bodies, the vibrations of our thoughts, the vibrations of our emotions don't just affect us. They affect absolutely every living being on this planet because the energy comes out of us and into the world and affects everything with whom it comes in contact. It can't help but do that. It cannot do otherwise. Again, that's not airy-fairy stuff. That's physics. What we put out there affects everything. Trees, flowers, dogs, other people, birds, every single shred of energy that comes off of you from your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your emotions, affects, with an A, Everything, everyone around you, it can't do otherwise. And so when we talk about karma, what we do does come back to us. If we give, it comes back. If we act with hostility, that hostility is going to come back to you. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not a week from Tuesday, but eventually what you do unto, unto others will be done unto you. And that, again, is not airy-fairy stuff. That's physics. Yeah. And a lot of people, one of the things that they learn during their NDE is that we are all connected. I've heard that word so many times. We're all connected. And I think you just explained how some of that works. The fact that if I do something, it affects you, it affects this person and that person. That's part of the connection. I want to ask you, I promised everybody that I'd we would figure out the question, why are there monkeys as the name of your book? Is that something that you ask God? Yes. Okay, tell me about that. As you probably know, Charles Darwin postulated the origin of species. And in his theory, which became known as the theory of evolution, the human race, before there were human beings, there were monkeys. And they evolved because evolution is life. Everything in life changes. Without change, there's nothing but death. In order to grow, you must evolve. That, that, again, that's just basic science. And when Darwin postulated that the human race evolved from what had been monkeys, 
and wrote books about it. He took a lot of flack from his environment. This was the 19th century at this point. And he'd been spending a lot of time with turtles in the Galapagos Islands. But he was quite certain that he knew what he was talking about. And in fact, pretty much he did know what he was talking about. So during my conversation with the divine, the creator, the father, the Irving, whatever you want to call him, he doesn't care. Um, I said, why, if, if, if the human race evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? Shouldn't they all have turned into people by now? I like the question. Okay. That was the genesis of the title of the book. Why are there monkeys? There are answers that I could give in abbreviated form during this conversation, Eric, but a lot of it would make a whole lot more sense if you were to read the book. And the whole book takes two hours to read. It's an itty bitty little book. And the backstory of the answers makes the answer much more interesting than any answer I could give right now. If I told it to you right now, it wouldn't have the same impact. That's okay. That's a bunch of teasers for the listeners if they're interested you had mentioned earlier that God has a sense of humor, which I totally believe. Give us an example of how you learned that. I learned that from hearing God laugh. It was, again, I wasn't hearing through my ears. All of me had become a virtual tuning fork. So I felt the, the sound of the words and then the laughter. And it felt like every cell in my body was smiling and being hugged when God laughed. It was the most fabulous sound I have ever experienced. But as with everything else, there's balance. I also heard God cry. And that's, that's an experience I hope to never repeat because it was, I've experienced a lot of pain in my life, physical pain. And emotional pain, hearing, experiencing God cry was horrifying in a way that I don't have words to describe. But when we got to the point of the conversation, when I was asking, why is there so much evil in this world? If you are a good and loving and kind creator and you love your children, why is there so much bad? That's, as I said to him at the time, that's one of the things that people say gives them a really hard time believing that you exist. Because they say, if there really was a loving, compassionate God, there would not be children being blown away by, you know, weapons of war or... Yeah, the Holocaust would have never happened. There wouldn't be children starving in Africa. Exactly, or in Appalachia or anywhere else. Um, so I was looking for that answer. If God is good, why is there so much evil? And again, I said, it's one of the reasons that people have a hard time believing that you exist. And the first thing that I heard after that was, huh, God, people have a hard time believing I exist because bad things happen. So does that mean people have a hard time believing that the devil exists because good things happen? <laughs> and that one caught me up short. 
And then as we're talking about man's ability to be horrifyingly abusive to other humans, to all life, to the planet we live on, just the, the level of hatred is just horrifying. I suddenly realized God was crying. And the only way I can explain that sound, and again, not hearing through my ears, but the vibrations are going through every cell in my body. And it felt as if the air that I was breathing was made of a million pieces of jagged, shattered glass. That's what it felt like when God was crying. His tears were like shattered pieces of glass that I was breathing. And I started crying. And I, oh, I never want to, I never want to hear that, feel that sound again. But hello, people, we can make God cry. We can make God laugh too. People ask me or make a statement. Oh, I know this book is fiction because I know God and I know God can't be funny. I've had people say that to me lots of times. And I find it fascinating. Come back with, oh, wait, do you believe God of your belief is everywhere, all-knowing, all-powerful? Well, yes, of course, that's God. I see. So the God you believe in can be anywhere and everywhere and can do anything, but can't be funny? Does that make sense to you? Well, no, God is serious. God doesn't laugh. Well, you know, hmm. If Robin Williams or Mr. Rogers could portray a father figure that was warm and loving and tender and gentle, don't you think God could do that too? And as for why God presented in a manner that was funny for me, I've been a comedian all my life, laughter and humor are my coping mechanisms. I had a very difficult childhood, and if not for humor, I wouldn't have survived. And to this day, humor is my go-to coping instinct. If the creator is, in fact, this father figure, which I now believe to be the case, what loving father would want to frighten or intimidate their child. And it suddenly occurred to me while I was having this experience, why wasn't I wrapped in a fetal position, cowering and shivering with fright? Why wasn't I scared? Shouldn't I have been? But I wasn't. I wasn't scared at all. And I finally figured it out. What reason would the Almighty have for making one of his children feel frightened or uncomfortable or anything negative. Would any father, any loving father do that? My answer is no. And when I explained that my conversations with the Almighty were funny, I think that's because God chose to make me be comfortable, to feel at home home and to present to me a being that I could understand, that I could relate to. 
and humor and the conversations we had in the context that we had them, that's how my brain works. That's how I'm made to feel comfortable. And why in the world wouldn't the almighty want his children to feel comfortable when we go and knock on his door and say hello? And safe and loved and... Completely. And if you feel more comfortable in a situation that's very serious, like some of those people you've talked to, maybe that would be their experience if they were in your shoes. Maybe. At this point, I have heard so many people who've had a what they call near-death experience and no two are the same. That's absolutely right. So was there a culmination to all this before you came back? What do you mean by that? What kind of culmination are you looking for here? Oh, you know, when you see a fireworks show and there's like the biggest bang finale at the end, was your com- did your conversation with God have one of those? And then it was like, oh, time to go back. Yep, there was. And I can explain all of this. I was legally dead for eight minutes. And I mean legally dead. I asked every question I could think of and every question I asked and every answer I was given are in the book, Why Are There Monkeys? It's the word-for-word account of it. Every question, every answer, and the last question I asked. Was it the reason that I was returned? I don't know. Maybe I'll know someday, but I don't know now. I do know that I suddenly had a feeling that there was only time for one more question. I don't know why, I just I just knew it. I, I just, my gut was telling me, I'm about to move to something else. I don't know what the something else is, but my time in this situation is about to come to an end. And he's asking, do you have one more question for me? And boom, therefore, this is gonna be my last question. So I think I better make it good. So I thought, and I thought, and I thought about every question I had asked. And what hadn't I asked, because I was getting the feeling that I was being asked for something in particular, but I didn't know what that was. But I was being given time and room to come up with another question, and it felt to me like it was going to be important. So I wanted to make sure it was the right question. If this was going to be my last question, what should it be? And, okay, I went through choice and boy that was a long conversation everything we do is about choice we choose the arc of our lives the path of our lives from this life to another everything we do is about the choices that we make we don't just haphazardly fall into this or that or the other we choose even if you don't want to make a choice that's a choice So I'm thinking I better come up with a good question. I've asked a whole bunch of them, but I'm only going to be able to ask one more. So what's it going to be? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and all of a sudden I knew. And it was a question I had never thought of. It is a question that had never, ever crossed my mind. Why it popped into my head at that moment, I don't know, but it did. So I took a deep breath. Figured, okay, I don't know, is this going to send me to hell? Am I going to go back and get to live more? Am I going to go through the door into heaven? I don't know, but okay. And okay, God, here's my last question. 
And I asked him. And the next thing I knew, I was back where I started, in my bedroom, surrounded by the two people who had been there the whole time. I took a deep breath, opened my eyes, and just, I guess I was in shock. I couldn't, I couldn't even say anything to them. I was just spinning. Did you feel like you had a choice on whether to come back or not, or were you just thrust back? At that particular point, knowing that I was 25 years old, and during the course of this conversation, I had readily admitted to the fact that I had pretty much made a dog's breakfast of life, my life. I made a whole bunch of really bad choices. I wanted to come back and try and maybe do a better job, maybe live a life that had a purpose. Um, maybe think less about me and more about everybody else. And I wanted to make a difference. I, I wanted to live a life that had a purpose, not just taking up space. So did it change you from then on? Were you a different person? Absolutely. But it took a while. At, when I first came back, I didn't know if what had happened was real or not. Again, this was before I had ever heard the term near-death experience um, or known anything about it. I didn't know what to make of it. And I didn't have anybody to talk to because I had never heard of this and nobody was walking around talking about it. And I didn't know where to go. And I was afraid everybody was going to like think I was nuts and lock me in a rubber room. That's how it was back then. So how long did it take before you finally talked to somebody about it? Not long after I came back was when I was given the undeniable proof that my experience had been real. It was after I came back. And there was absolutely no question, but that that was undeniable proof. And every word of it is in the book. I explain how it is that it was proven to me that this really did happen. And once I knew that what I had gone through was real, I sat down and figured, I think I have a responsibility here. I'm not sure what that responsibility is, but I want to learn how to live in a way that is in harmony with the experience that I had. I, I want to live a different kind of life, a life that somehow gives testimony to that experience. I want to share it in whatever way I can. Um, so I wrote it all down, word for word. And then I found some people who they were San Francisco DJs. I was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, and they had a Wednesday evening Bible study. And these were not the Bible thumping, fundamental evangelical Pat Robertson kinds of people. These were decent human beings who recognized a God of compassion, love, and mercy. And I thought, all right, I'm going to talk to these people. So I did. And I joined their Bible study and we sat and we talked and we went through the Bible and I discussed some of what I had experienced. And yeah, I kept it all pretty 
close to the vest because I still wasn't sure how it was going to be received. And again, I still had not heard the term near-death experience or Dr. Raymond Moody or the white light or the tunnel or any of it. And nobody I knew had ever heard of it either. So I was still being very cautious about just how much I shared. But I spent some time Wednesday evenings with this group of people and I remember walking through the living room of my house one day and the television was on. And uh, as I was walking through the living room toward the kitchen, Pat Robertson and the 700 Club was on my television. I don't know why, but it was. And I heard Pat Robertson say to his audience of 90 bajillion people, if you send us a donation, we will, at the 700 Club, guarantee your admission to heaven. I backed, I walked backwards into the living room and stood in front of the television and watched as he went on pontificating on this same theme of, you know, God wants you to be rich, but he wants me to be richer. Um, and anything you give to me will come back to you twofold and blah, 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 blah. And I turned off the television and I said, that's it. That's it. This is not what I experienced. This is not the God I met. And I want nothing to do with this. So that was the end of my Bible study. And I then started researching everything I could. And I started getting serious about my Buddhist practice because people refer to Buddhism as a religion, but it isn't in that it's it's not theist. It, it's not based on the worship of a deity. Uh, so I don't consider Buddhism a religion. I consider it a spiritual practice. And I am a practicing Buddha, a Buddhist, and I figure if I practice long enough, maybe I'll get good at it or better at it or something. But um, it took me several months to get to the point first where I knew what had happened had really happened, and then how to live a life that was um, in harmony with what I had experienced. During the course of my life, I have had experiences that there is no earthly reason why I survived, none. And um, there's a, an article on my blog called Death Be Not, in which I describe three of those instances. One of them in particular that I, I cannot describe to you because I suffer from really bad PTSD and talking about this particular experience makes me physically ill. But when I had that other experience that I can't talk about right now, I got home and I immediately grabbed my computer and started typing, closed my eyes. I type 100 words a minute. I closed my eyes and I typed every word of my divine experience, my near-death experience. And then I went through my notebooks. And I'm one of those people who has, I have no idea, 10,000 spiral notebooks in my house from years and years and years and years of writing and writing and writing. I found the notebook in which I had written 25 years earlier, the word for word account of my experience, which I wrote the day that I got the proof that it had really happened. I wrote it down in a notebook. I put it away. Now, 25 years later, after just surviving an ordeal that 
I don't understand how I survived. I felt an angel tapping me on the shoulder. I don't know. I, I felt this overwhelming need to write and revisit and write that experience again. So I typed it all out. And then I found the notebook that I had written it out in 25 years earlier. And I studied them and they were identical word for word. So I had it published and it has now been published and people can read it. And as I said, I don't make any money from it. I give all of that money to the Breast Cancer Research Foundation because I, one of the many things that I've survived that nobody can explain to me how I survived is I survived breast cancer, even though they didn't diagnose it until it had already spread. And so, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, I shouldn't be here, but here I still am. And I think one of the things I was supposed to do, I don't feel like I had a mission from God. I don't, I don't feel like I came back with a mission from God. I think that was, you know, Jake and Elwood Blues, the Blues Brothers, they had a mission from God. I think I had a divine responsibility, maybe. Mm -hmm. And that responsibility was to share my experience. And we'll put a link in the show notes to your website and all of that. All right, before we wrap up, do you have one important message that you want to leave with everybody? People say the world's going to hell in a handbasket or whatever. And I can't do anything about it because I'm just one person. And to that, I say, the fact that you're just one person doesn't mean you cannot affect the world. You cannot affect change. You cannot bring about good in a horrifying scenario of bad that we are currently living in. One person can make a huge difference. Part of it is because of, as I said, energy, hold up your hand. You think it's not moving. Well, it is. Every cell in your body is moving. You are vibrating at a frequency that is compatible with some and incompatible with others. If you've ever walked into a room and seen people that you've never seen before, and one of them looks like you don't know why, you want to get to know that person. It's not because they're particularly handsome or beautiful, but something in you is drawing you to them and you just want to say hi. And similarly, there's another person on the other side of the room you've never met before, doesn't look familiar, but you just don't feel comfortable around them. And you don't know why. You just know you don't particularly want to have to talk to them. Well, that's because everybody has a frequency. Everybody vibrates at a frequency and your frequency may be compatible with mine, but incompatible with somebody else's. And every single thing that we say and do and think because we are putting out energy every second of our lives, we are having an impact on everybody with whom we come in contact. So if you think I'm just one person, so what can I possibly do? The fact is you can make remarkable changes in this world by recognizing that the energy that you give off, that you emit either from what you say or what you do or how you act can change the world. I hope, I hope that one of the things that people are going to take from my experience is the realization 
that one person can change the world. It's about what you think. Focus your mind on sharing positive energy. Recognizing that the people who don't have what you have probably want what you have, but you can give them, even if you don't have money to give, you can give them your energy, your thoughts, your emotions, just the thought of, oh my God, that poor person is going through such a hard time. Just that sends out healing energy. On a scale of one to 13, how afraid of death are you? Negative 900. Perfect. I've been there. And came back. And came back. I have no fear of death whatsoever. I'm not uh, looking forward to any astronomical amount of pain that gets me there. But the actual act, it's a doorway. That's all it is. It's a doorway. It's not an end. It's a new beginning. So, no, I have no fear of death at all. How freeing would that be if other people felt that way? Because, you know, we kind of as humans walk around in this world having this fear of not only the unknown, but, you know, is there really something after this? Wouldn't we live a little bit differently if we knew that there was? Well, on the one hand, when we were younger, we all thought we were bulletproof. And thinking you're bulletproof tends to lead to really uncautious behavior tends to make people do really stupid things. So I have to qualify my belief about this. If everybody knew that this one life is not the only life and that even the laws of physics make it impossible for this to be the only life, energy doesn't die. We're made of energy. So, okay, we breathe our last breath, but the cells within our bodies are still vibrating. It's still going on. There's still life there in the basic laws of physics. I'm looking forward to it. Brooke Jones, thanks a lot. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, good having you on today. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again for listening and remember to share this podcast. To be notified when the next episode goes live, follow us on your podcasting app or click over to roundtripdeath.com and sign up for our email newsletter. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Music